Do you feel prepared? With everything going on in the world, do you find yourself thinking about self-defense, home protection, and financial protection more than ever? One form of financial protection is diversification. Gold has often been used to protect assets against inflation. Gold is a global reserve asset, and countries are buying massive amounts of gold as a hedge against financial collapse. It's time to help protect yourself and invest in gold. Stop thinking things are going to get better. You need to look out for yourself and your family. Visit LearnAboutGold.com. LearnAboutGold.com is a simple, free educational website. LearnAboutGold.com can help you learn about gold. Our website has extensive educational resources that can help guide you along the path of precious metals investing. It's time to inform yourself about why owning gold is more important today than ever. LearnAboutGold.com. That's LearnAboutGold.com. Three words. LearnAboutGold.com. Today on the Matt Wall Show, Oliver Anthony went from totally unknown to a famous singer performing for crowds of thousands in the span of less than a week. Now, as expected, the media has set to work attacking him. Also, Joe Biden has no comment for the dozens of people who died from the wildfires in Hawaii. The full content of the Obama letter where he confesses to his gay fantasies has been revealed. Vivek Ramaswamy performs a rap song at the Iowa State Fair and a media outlet tries to debunk one of my monologues from last week. All of that and more today on the Matt Wall Show. Innovation Refunds has been helping small businesses that qualify to get a business payroll tax refund through the Employee Retention Credit, or also known as the ERC. The ERC is a tax refund for businesses that kept employees on payroll for parts of 2020 and 2021. If you own a business with more than five employees, you could have money waiting to be claimed. Are you uncertain about your eligibility for the ERC? Innovation Refunds has a team of independent tax attorneys that will collaborate with your CPA to assess your eligibility, ensuring you feel confident before submitting your application. They've already helped thousands of eligible businesses apply for the ERC. Innovation Refunds does not provide tax or legal advice. They work with an independent network of tax professionals and will share information with them to evaluate and process your claims. Go to GetRefunds.com to determine eligibility. If you qualify, you could be on your way to receiving money for your business. There's no upfront charge since they don't get paid unless you get paid. Go to GetRefunds.com or dial 1-843-REFUNDS. That's GetRefunds.com or 1-843-REFUNDS. Terms and conditions apply. Seven years ago, for one night, the attention of the national political class in this country was on a small town in the middle of Virginia called Farmville. The occasion at that time was the vice presidential debate between Tim Kaine and Mike Pence. A handful of uh, Farmville's 8,000 residents were in attendance for this uh, event, and most of the debate focused on issues that no one even pretends to care about anymore, like Donald Trump's tax returns and the fact that Trump called Rosie O'Donnell a fat slob. Uh, There was a lot of talk about the internal politics of faraway countries like Syria. What didn't come up in any meaningful way is what either party would do to help towns like Farmville. And that's kind of odd when you think about it. By the time Tim Kaine, Mike Pence, and the National Press Corps showed up in 2016, Farmville had been bleeding population for many years. The median income in Farmville was an obvious cause for concern. It was less than half the median income in the United States and dropping. Thousands of residents lived in poverty. And yet, despite all that, um, you know, all that the residents of Farmville heard during the debate were vague promises and cliches about an economy that would soon work for everyone, leave no one behind. Seven years later, both major political parties have had a chance to run the White House. Uh, the decline of Farmville, Virginia has only continued in the meantime. 
Four years after that vice presidential debate, the one with all the promises, where all the promises were made, Farmville ranked as the single poorest town in all of Virginia, with nearly a third of residents living below the poverty line. In 2021, the median household income in Farmville was under $36,000. That's the median, compared to more than $70,000 in the United States generally. Now, what's happening in Farmville isn't unique. Multiply the story of Farmville, Virginia, by the thousands of small towns all over the country that have deteriorated in recent years, and you get some sense of the scale of American decline that's been completely ignored in Washington. Now, politicians, they like to use these towns as props or as picturesque backdrops for their televised debates. But once the cameras leave, so do the politicians. So does the media. So does everyone. Now, one of the Farmville residents they left behind is named Oliver Anthony. He's a former factory worker who lives with his three dogs in the town. And last week, I briefly talked about Anthony's breakout song, Rich Men North of Richmond. The song isn't just about the failings of this country's political leaders who long ago abandoned people like Oliver Anthony. It's also about dignity, about personal responsibility, about spirituality, all verboten topics in the music industry. You've probably seen the song on social media. It's everywhere now. You can't escape it. Um, We played it on the show on Friday. Now, for context, Anthony was completely unknown and recording songs with his iPhone for an audience of a few dozen on YouTube as recently as last week. At this time, seven days ago, nobody had ever heard of him. Here he was on August 7th. Watch. Well, hey, it's August the 7th, 2023. And um, as of this recording, tomorrow on Tuesday, Radio WV is going to upload the debut of Richmond North of Richmond. And it's going to be the first song to get out there that's been recorded on a real microphone and a real camera, and not just on my cell phone. And uh, Lord willing, it's going to get some traffic. It's going to get some traffic. It, it certainly got some traffic, that's for sure. A few days later, that guy had three of the top ten songs on iTunes. Three of them. He was performing for a crowd of thousands in North Carolina where they were all singing along as if they'd been singing his songs for years. So here he is performing Richmond, North of Richmond, Richmond for the uh, for the massive crowd in North Carolina. Watch. I've been selling my soul, working all day, double time hours for both pay, so I can sit out here, waste my life away. Drag back home and drown my troubles away. It's a damn shame what the world's gotten to for people like me and people like you. Wish I could just wake up and it not be true, but it is. Lord, it is living in the new world with an old soul. Rich men, North or Richmond, Lord knows they all just want to have total control. Wanna know what you think, wanna know what you do, and they don't think you know, but I know that you do, cause your dollar hates and it's tax to know him, cause the rich men know the rich men. Wish politicians look out for miners and not just miners on an island somewhere. Lord, we got kids in the street, ain't got nothing to eat, and the old beach 
milk and welfare. By God, if you're five foot three and you're 300 pounds, taxes ought not to pay for your bags of fudge rounds. Men are putting themselves six feet in the ground because all this damn country does is keep on kicking them down. Oliver Anthony and the many people cheering him on, uh, they're not supposed to exist, or at least you're not supposed to know that they do. You're not supposed to uh, hear from any of them. They don't belong to any of the perpetually oppressed classes you're told endlessly to grieve for. They don't go around identifying as LGBTQ2S plus or whatever. These are people who have actual useful skills, people who want to work for a living. These are people who don't think their sexuality or race is a substitute for personality or ethics. These are religious people, men and women who despise sexual degenerates, who appreciate good music, who understand that they themselves are not all-powerful and all-knowing. They are not the controlled opposition the left has grown familiar with. These are, in a word, normal people. It's as simple as that. Now, Anthony made much of this very clear this weekend. Moments before the performance that you just saw, he delivered an important message to the crowd that had gathered. And as, as you watch this, I want you to put yourself in Anthony's position for a moment. Just a few days ago, you're a complete unknown. No one listens to your music. No one's heard of you. Now, all of a sudden, you're getting all kinds of offers for interviews and record deals and everything. You're one of the top trending topics across all social media platforms. Well, given that sort of platform and that attention, how would you begin your first show after all this attention? Here's how Oliver Anthony did it. Watch. Psalm 37, 12 through 20. The wicked plot against the righteous and gnash their teeth at them, but the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he knows their day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend the bow to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose ways are upright, but their swords will pierce their own hearts and their bows will be broken. Better the little that have righteousness than the wealth of many wicked. For the power of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The blameless spend their days under the Lord's care, and their inheritance will endure forever. In times of disaster, they will not wither. In days of famine, they will have plenty. But the wicked will perish. Though the Lord's enemies are like the flowers of the field, they will be consumed, and they will go up in smoke. So he opens this concert not with a plug for his Instagram or with some kind of narcissistic celebration of his own success. Instead, he quotes Psalm 37, the wicked will perish, he says, and the crowd erupts, which is quite an applause line. They've probably never seen anything like that, at least not from a famous musician. This isn't a Sam Smith's Satanism or Cardi B's sexual perversion. In fact, most of the people in that crowd probably haven't even heard a message like that in their churches, where most pastors would consider it insufficiently welcoming to quote the Bible's warnings about the punishments doled out to evildoers. So it's not just that he started his first concert, really, you know, after getting all this attention. Not, he didn't just start it with a Bible verse. He chose that Bible verse. Now, I don't think that Anthony was trying to do anything revolutionary by reading that particular passage. It just means something to him. You can tell he's getting emotional reading it. It resonates with him, so he read it. And it's a beautiful verse and an important one. He's a normal and authentic guy which is the whole appeal. He's also a great musician. 
Now, that simple fact makes him a clear and present danger to the many talentless and eternally bitter members of the so-called entertainment industry, along with their friends in the equally joyless news media. And that's why, predictably, Rolling Stone just published the first hit piece on Oliver Anthony. Many more will surely follow, but for its part, Rolling Stone chalked Anthony's success up to, quote, right-wing influencers who have artificially promoted Anthony's song, they say. Now, the piece mentions me, a few other people who are uh, guilty of, of, uh, of promoting Oliver Anthony. For the record, I, I very much object to being called an influencer. But we have to ask, is that really the explanation for the success of Richmond, north of Richmond? I'd love to take credit for it if I could, but is that really how it works? I mean, you saw the clips we just showed you. The crowd didn't look like a bunch of influencers to me, and they didn't even look like the sorts of people who pay very close attention to influencers. How many of those people are even on Twitter? They seem, again, like just normal people. TMZ managed to miss the point even more, implying that Anthony wrote the song in order to make money. That's why he wrote it. Here's what they wrote. Quote, this is a pretty fascinating trend we're seeing. It appears when right-wingers perceive something like a song they think addresses their grievances and perspectives, they lean into it. And from that small sample size, we've noticed it can be effective in the marketplace. Capitalism, baby. It reigns supreme. In other words, he's just trying to make a quick buck. Capitalism, baby, they sneer, as if it was, as if it was so obvious that a song like this would instantly go to number one on iTunes. As if Anthony stood in the woods next to his deer stand and played an acoustic song about his troubles as a working man, all in some cynical ploy to make millions of dollars from an audience who, at that point, didn't even know he existed. Now, it's pretty obvious that what happened is this. Anthony was singing from his heart about his own experiences. He assumed the song would be heard by the same few dozen people who heard his other songs. And he was fortunately quite wrong in that assumption. Now, as weak as these hit pieces are, the truth is, uh, we know that Rolling Stone and TMZ are just firing the warning shots here. We already know that the media will set to work to destroy Oliver Anthony. No doubt they're digging through his past right now, looking for skeletons as we speak. And maybe they'll find some. Everyone has a few. Honestly, who cares? As the Daily Beast and Huffington Post ghouls scour through Anthony's social media feeds, start interviewing his high school friends looking for dirt, Let's take a step back here, because what we're seeing here, as remarkable as it is, shouldn't be viewed in isolation. Consider this. All of the biggest hit songs that have gotten the buzz and attention in recent weeks have been country songs. Recently, the top three songs on Billboard were country songs. Never happened before. Before Anthony, it was Jason Aldean with a song centered around similar themes. Try that in a small town, Aldean sang. And that touched off what, like a two-week news cycle? The media freaked out about the Aldine song just as they're starting to freak out about Anthony's song because it's music that attacks the elites and gives voice to the normal concerns of normal people. Americans who aren't demented, as it turns out, uh, don't like it when hordes of BLM rioters torch small businesses and courthouses in their communities. They don't like it when politicians send billions of dollars to Ukraine while towns like Farmville fall apart. Normal people have been told to shut up about all this for years and years. But now those people have a voice. You know, a moment ago, I scoffed at the idea that Anthony would make a song like this as some sort of marketing or self-promotional strategy. And that is an idea that deserves to be scoffed at because it's totally absurd given the context. But we should note that, yes, there is indeed a huge market for this kind of thing. Just like there's a huge market for movies like Sound of Freedom. 
That's the other thing. That's, that's the other context we should consider all this in. Think about the songs that are getting all the attention right now. The, the biggest hit songs right now and the biggest hit movies. Millions and millions of people, normal people, are starving for art that speaks to them and their values and concerns. There is, in fact, many millions of dollars to be made here. That wasn't Anthony's motivation, but the money is there to be made. And now he'll likely make some of it, whether he wanted to or not. This just makes it all the more remarkable that the mainstream music industry, just like the mainstream film industry, absolutely refuses to cater to this audience or give them art that will actually resonate with them. Now, sure, you can make plenty of money by churning out another demented rap song you know, that talks about female genitalia in graphic terms and openly encourages the listeners to act in depraved and lawless and self-destructive ways. You can make plenty of money with another mindless, soulless pop song that might as well have been generated by AI. But uh, the songs that have set the world on fire recently, the ones that have topped the charts and gotten people talking, dominated the news cycle for weeks, are songs that connect with an audience that despises all of that stuff. Anthony sings uh, in uh, Richmond, North of Richmond, that he's a that he's an old soul living in a new world. And those of us who relate to that lyric, as I certainly do, are, are made to feel this way in large part because of the sort of art, quote unquote, that the entertainment industry vomits out. We see all that stuff and we listen to it and our souls are crushed just a little more each time. It grieves us to be surrounded by such ugliness and stupidity. And to think that so many people are just marinating in this filth without realizing what it's doing to them. There are many of us who feel that way. So many that we made a literal overnight superstar out of one simple, authentic guy strumming his guitar in the woods. So the question is, given that this huge market exists and that it is hungry for this kind of content, this kind of art, why won't the entertainment industry serve it? Even if it is just for the sake of capitalism, baby, as TMZ says, why don't they produce songs like Rich Men North of Richmond? Well, the answer is exactly what we've already established. They hate normal people, you know, people who read their Bibles and have traditional quote-unquote values and care about things like hard work and honesty. They hate us, and they want us all to become lazy, helpless, degenerate parasites. They want to create a population of stupid, weird, hollow people. They will even forego profit to make that happen. That's how deeply they hate normalcy. That's how badly they want to destroy it. Which, fine. If they don't want our money, no problem. We'll give it to guys like Oliver Anthony instead. Now let's get to our five headlines. If you want some positive news in the culture war, well, since Roe v. Wade was overturned, the left has lost their mind making abortion their official sacrament. The pro-life efforts, which are more important now than ever, are booming. You heard that right. Despite the narrative, pro-lifers didn't go away. They increased in number. As one of the largest pro-life organizations in the world, no one's in a better position than 40 Days for Life to end abortion in each state in a post-Roe America. 40 Days for Life is changing hearts and minds in the most blue pro-abortion states. They've had a record number of locations since Roe was overturned. And they grew in both volunteers and locations. With about a million volunteers in 1,500 cities, they, held, uh, they hold peaceful vigils outside abortion facilities. You can help them fight the ongoing legal battles by protecting free speech for the volunteers by giving a tax-deductible gift of any amount at 40daysforlife.com. That's 40daysforlife.com.
Bloomberg reports the uh, death toll from the fast-moving wildfires in Maui rose to 93, making them the deadliest uh, wildfires in the U.S. in more than 100 years as concerns grew about the effectiveness of the island's emergency alarm system. The number of fatalities is expected to climb further as authorities continue to search and rescue efforts. Hawaii Governor uh, Josh Green reported a news briefing on Saturday. Just 3% of the area has been searched, officials said, adding that they're bringing in 12 more cadaver dogs to help with the effort. On Sunday, officials said it's still unclear when residents may return to the area. Uh, Green said, quote, this is the largest natural disaster we've ever experienced. It's also going to be a natural disaster that takes an incredible amount of time to recover from. The death toll makes the wildfire the deadliest since 1918 when 453 people were killed in Minnesota and Wisconsin uh, by the uh, Moose Lake fires. Losses are estimated to be approaching $6 billion after roughly uh, 2,200 structures were destroyed in West Maui across the more than 2,000 acres burned by the blaze. So this is a truly historic, unfathomably awful catastrophe, deadliest wildfire in a century, uh, which makes you wonder, what does the president of the United States think about all this? What are his plans in response? These are Valid questions, the kind of things you might you might wonder. Um, well, you're going to have to keep wondering, I guess, because he won't tell us. Joseph Sink is a White House correspondent for Bloomberg, and he tweeted this yesterday. Quote, after a couple hours on the Rehoboth Beach, uh, HOTUS was asked about the rising death toll in Hawaii. No comment, he said, before heading home. Okay, so... This is all going on. Joe Biden is uh, just lounging on the beach in the meantime, taking his, I don't know how many vacations this guy has taken, but it, it, it's a huge portion of his presidency has been spent on vacation. And we know this is kind of a game that's played, I'll admit, you know, uh, it's a game that's played on both sides a little bit, where depending on if it's a Republican or Democrat in office, then you keep track of the time they spend golfing or the time they spend on vacation, and you make a big deal out of, oh, you spent 93 days golfing or whatever. Um, and then when it's your own guy, it's, it's not a big deal. You don't talk about it. So the Democrats did the same thing with Trump. They kept very close tabs on all the times he went out golfing. And now the fact that Joe Biden is on vacation every other week is not a problem for them. So this is one of those both sides things, except for for Biden, this is real. I mean, this is, this is we know the presidents in recent years have... Uh, really enjoyed their luxury, their, their uh, relaxation time, probably too much. But for Biden, this is, it's just, it's, his whole presidency, he's been on vacation. He just doesn't, he doesn't do anything but go on vacation. Um, and if you're going to do that, then you should at least pretend that you've got people handling this. And the thing is, you know, there are times when if you're a politician, somebody could run up and ask you a question you're not prepared for, or maybe it seems like the question is a trap, you know, it's a trick question. And so you give a no comment or whatever, you keep walking, you pretend you didn't hear it. But something like this, you think it's very easy to, to respond to. You know, you don't have to lay out a whole plan right there on the spot, but you could say it's a terrible tragedy. Our hearts and uh, our, our prayers are, are with them. We've got people working on it right now. My team is responding. We're doing this and that. Here's what we're doing. You know, it's just like a 15, 20 second answer would be enough to get you off the hook right in that moment, at least. No comment? Mr. President, uh, dozens and dozens of people have been killed in an American state from wildfires. Uh, what, what, what are your thoughts? No comment. What? 
So as far as I can tell, there are maybe four, well, maybe four possible explanations for why Joe Biden would answer no comment given a, a question like this. Um, the first is that he actually has no idea what's going on in Hawaii. He just has no clue. He's totally, totally out of it. He just doesn't know. Um, and so when he heard the setup for the question, all he heard was a rising death toll in Hawaii. He didn't even know what it was referring to. And so he thought it was some kind of trick and he said no comment. So that's one possibility. He has no idea what's going on. Um, the other possibility is that he knows but just doesn't care. And he can't even pretend to care. The third is that he panicked. Maybe he knows about it, but he panicked because uh, his handlers hadn't given him specific a specific script to follow. They hadn't told him exactly what to say. They hadn't written it on a cue card for him. And so he didn't know what to say. He only speaks publicly if he's been told ahead of time what he's supposed to say. And they hadn't given him his assigned words, so he didn't, so he just, he froze. That's, that's another explanation. And then the fourth, uh, you know, if you like conspiracy theories, is there is there some kind of detail about this story that we haven't been told, which makes Biden reluctant to discuss it? Um, so if you want to get into conspiracy theories, that'd be it. I, for me, though, I'm, it's I'm I'm thinking it's it's most most plausibly the first or second scenario. Uh, the first being again that he just has no idea that he's so completely out of it at this point that he honestly doesn't even know that there are wildfires in uh, Hawaii. Or that he just doesn't care. Yeah, that's also um, more than than likely. Because as much as uh, Biden has been sold as the decent man, empathy. Remember, we heard so much about that during the campaign. The media would tell us there's all these articles written. Empathy is on the ballot. Now we have a chance finally for empathy. So empathetic. And that was always bogus. Like there was no, that, that's never been the case with Joe Biden. Through his 50 years in the public eye, in reality, he's never been uh, revered for his empathy. In fact, he's been, notori- he's been a notorious scumbag. He's been a notorious self-interested scumbag who doesn't care about anybody himself, but himself. And he's not the only one in, in Washington, D.C. who is that way, certainly. But he's well known as that. How did he get rebranded as compassionate and empathetic? Well, just because he's old. That's it. Some of this is like a natural thing that some old people benefit from, where you could just be an absolute scumbag piece of garbage. But if you're over the age of 75, you just kind of like you come off as sort of, you know, everyone just assumes, oh, he's a nice old man. He's got some wisdom to him in his years, uh, from all of his years. But that's, uh, you know, Virtue and character and integrity, empathy, wisdom, these don't automatically come with age, certainly. Uh, And if you've been a scumbag your entire life, then you're still going to be one when you're old. So you're just an 80-year-old scumbag is all, which is what Joe Biden is. So whatever the explanation is, he knows about the wildfires, he knows uh, about the disaster, but doesn't care, he doesn't know. Whatever the explanation is, it is, it's terrifying that this man is running the country and that millions of people, tens of millions of people are, are gearing up to vote for him again, in spite of all that. 
All right, it's from the New York Post. Former President Barack Obama wrote of his own androgynous mind and making love to men daily, but in the imagination, according to the redacted portion of a now notorious 1982 letter obtained by the Post. So we talked last week about this letter uh, where Biden, or rather Obama, uh, mentioned his homosexual fantasies. But at that point, that part of the letter had been redacted, so we didn't know what it actually said. And now we know what's in the actual letter. The more than 40-year-old letter to an ex-girlfriend recently resurfaced after Obama biographer David Garrow gave a long and winding interview on the one-time commander-in-chief. In regard to homosexuality, um, quote, this is a quote now, in regard to homosexuality, I must say that I believe this is an attempt to remove oneself from the present, a refusal perhaps to perpetuate the endless farce of earthly life. You see, I make love to men daily, but in the imagination. This is what Obama wrote to Alex McNear in uh, November of 1982. My mind is androgynous to a great extent, and I hope to make it more so until I can think in terms of people, not women, as opposed to men. But in returning to the body, I see that I have been made a man, and physically in life, I choose to accept that contingency. McNear, who dated Obama during his years at Occidental College in Los Angeles, later redacted these salacious paragraphs, which the Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Garrow hunted down and included in uh, his book Rising Star, the letter is currently owned by Emory University, which doesn't permit it to be photographed or removed. Instead, Garrow's friend Harvey Clare transcribed the paragraphs by hand and sent them to the author. Okay, so I think there are maybe two takeaways here. There are no surprises. Nothing is surprising about this at all. But there are two takeaways. And the first, before we get to the homosexuality stuff, the first is, is that Obama has been a pompous tool his entire life. Again, not a surprise, but that's a takeaway. My mind is androgynous, for I yearn to be released from the confines of this binary serfdom of constructed realities. Like, th this, is, this is Amanda Gorman tier faux profundity, is, is what it is. Like, this dude actually wrote the phrase, unironically, quote, perpetuate the endless farce of earthly life. He actually wrote that phrase. Um, and ironically, it is in a certain way, it's like it's this is a certain way that the straightest thing he's he's ever done, also, because this is it's like a desperate attempt to impress this girl. It's how desperate he is that he's writing stuff like this. This will impress her. Now she really thinks I'm smart. Um but the straightest thing is also extremely gay because we also know that he uh, that he confessed to his gay fantasies. I just hope that the girl wrote him back and was like, "Dear Barry, you are at least seventy IQ points dumber than you think you are." But I think nobody ever told him that in his entire life, which is which explains everything that happened after. Uh, but then again, we get to the the second big takeaway, which is the gay fantasy, um, and this is now it's confirmed. It's confirmed at the very least that this guy was having homosexual fantasies in, in his early 20s. Um, if you want to theorize that, uh, well, it doesn't mean that he ever acted on them or that he was actually, that he ever was an active homosexual. You know, that's one theory. I don't find it terribly plausible. But this is another one of those things that, I mean, for years, for years and years, uh, you had... 
many people on the right uh, talking about this, you know, uh, let's say predicting this about Obama. And we were told it's all, uh, it's just rumors, that's nothing, it's ridiculous, conspiracy theory, conspiracy mongering. And even though it's not a conspiracy at all, well, in a certain way it is. So like to, 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 there, there's actual conspiracy theory, conspiracy here to cover up this. This was written, this is documented, his homosexual fantasies were, fantasies were documented, and then they were redacted by this university. So there is an actual conspiracy of cover-up here. And uh, for so long, they were, they were, uh, it was dismissed as, a, as nothing more than conspiracy theory. So really, we, we have to chalk this up as yet another cons- quote-unquote conspiracy theory that has been confirmed, as they almost always are. And this is another one. Um, kind of an interesting moment on CBS over the weekend when they were forced to admit that Political extremism and radicalization exists on the left as well. Now, they usually, almost every time, if you hear the mainstream media talking about uh, radicalization, extremism, political violence, 99% of the time, if they're talking about that, then you know exactly where it's going. But in this case, they were forced to admit that it actually exists on the left. Uh, Let's watch that moment. In looking at some of the research you shared with us, one of the things that stood out, you are seeing this radicalization on both sides of the political spectrum. 30 million people, according to your numbers, think the use of force is justified to prevent Donald Trump from being president. 18 million think it's justified to restore Trump to the presidency. Exactly. What we're seeing is not simply um, a manifestation on the right. That is absolutely important. And there's no doubt that January 6th, the crowd that sieged the Capitol is something that has not happened on the left. Mm -hmm. So I'm not trying to draw that equivalence. But nonetheless, what we need to look at are the sentiments on both the right and the left that are being radicalized to millions and millions of uh, Americans. And this is important because political, uh, these sentiments are a bit like uh, understanding wildfires, the first part of your show. It's the dry kindling that is so important that we can measure in advance. We can't measure political, uh, political uh, scientists like myself or meteorologists, a campfire that could set off that kindling or power lines that could set off that kindling. What we can actually measure and see whether it's growing, shrinking, are the sentiments for political violence in the country. And those are growing. And it's important, not because every one of those people is going to commit political violence, but because it helps to legitimate political violence. And it is the pool of people that ultimately do commit acts of political violence. So we just look over uh, the part of the beginning there where, because he knows if he's going to acknowledge any kind of extremism on the left, he has to couch it very carefully uh, and, and add a bunch of qualifications. And he says, well, we obviously know it's so much worse on the right. And it's January 6th. There's nothing like that has ever happened in history. It's the worst thing ever. Obviously, we know that. Um, and we only know that, uh, of course, if we ignore every violent riot that the left has uh, facilitated and committed and funded and supported, if we ignore all of them, the many hundreds of them, then yes, nothing like January 6th has ever happened before. 
uh, and that's all on the right. So, of course, he throws that in, but you can't get away from um, what you saw in the poll there. And that's uh, like twice the number of people that would commit violence to stop Trump than would say that they would commit violence to instate Trump. Um, and, you know, we talked about, I think it was this exact poll we talked about last week. And some of this is, you know, some, some of this is just always there. You know, this is us being scandalized by, by to what, what to a certain extent is normal. Um, the, the, uh, the willingness to commit potentially Basically, the question is, would, would you potentially support political violence in certain circumstances? And a lot of people say yes to that. I mean, that exists anywhere in, in the world and throughout history. And as I pointed out many times, our, our country was born in political violence. So, um, and it's not even that political violence is always wrong. Obviously, it isn't. If you think that it is, then, you know, this country shouldn't exist, which... Of course, that the left would probably affirm that it shouldn't exist. Um, but if you're concerned about this in particular, well, yeah, is it a surprise that whatever it was, was it 30 million Americans so that they would commit violence to stop Trump from being elected? Is that a surprise? No, because when they turn on CBS or any other corporate media outlet, uh, at any point over the last many years, they hear over and over again how Trump is an existential threat to democracy, to our very way of life, to our civilization. He's a fascist. He's worse than Hitler. He's a threat. We hear that over and over and over again. And and so it, it, this is actually it's a it's a logical conclusion. Like, if all that was true, if everything they say about Trump was true, then, yeah, you're damn right that political violence would be justified to stop him. He's actually a threat to our civilization. He's a, he's a fascist dictator worse than Hitler, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, yeah, of course political violence would be justified then. But obviously it's not true. Obvious to you and me anyway, but not to the uh, many people that turn to corporate media outlets for their, for their news. Iowa State Fair over the weekend, the big stories were Trump and DeSantis, but to me, the most interesting stories centered around Vivek Ramaswamy, and I have two clips of him. I'll play the first for you, and we're going we're gonna to play a game that I like to play, which I just made up this very moment, called Cringe or Relatable. So is the following clip cringe, or does it make Vivek relatable? Or both. That's possible, too. Let's watch this. Loud. He opens his mouth, but the words won't come out. He's joking how everybody's joking now. The clocks run out, time's up, over plow, snap back to reality. Oh, there goes gravity, oh, there goes gravity. Choke, he's so mad, but he won't give up that easy. No, he won't that but he knows his own bad that he's broke. His own bad that he's choked, he don't matter, but he's broke. He's so sad that he knows when he goes back to this mobile home. That's when it's back to the lab. Yo, it's so rapid. Better go catch this. Moment, I hope it don't catch you. Lose yourself in the music, the moment you own it. You that was a song. Uh, 
If you try to tell me that wasn't cringe, then you lose the game. Uh, that's not accept- an acceptable answer. I can't take you seriously. I mean, it's definitely cr- it's cringe on steroids. There's no way around it. And it's not. Some Vivek fans on social media I saw were, were, uh, were posting this video and saying, among other things, that, uh, that you know, this is, you got to be loose like this if you want to connect with a younger audience. Yeah, connect with, with the youth with this song. That song's 20 years old. I hate to tell you. Okay, that's, this is the oldies. Okay, that belongs on the oldies channel now. This is, and I know if you're my age, it's a terrifying thing to think, but I can remember growing up in the 90s and driving in the car with my parents and they put the oldies station on and the oldies station, that was, that was songs in the 70s. That's what counted as oldies. So that's an oldie now. It's 20 years old. Um, so it's not exactly connecting with the youth, I don't think. Uh, the youth are not driving around in their cars listening to uh, Lose Yourself by Eminem from the year 2004 or whatever it was. And it, it didn't seem to be connecting much with the um, older folks in that crowd who are just standing there, to me, looking kind of confused. Like, what is this guy doing? You're supposed to be giving us your tax plan or something. Dude, what is this? Um, now, maybe you say... Okay, it's cringe, yes, no way around it, but it's also relatable. And because regular people do cringe things all the time, and we can relate to that, which, okay, sure. But, I mean, if he walked out on stage with a piece of broccoli stuck in his teeth uh, accidentally, that would make him relatable in a certain way. We've all made that mistake before. You got something stuck in your teeth, you go out in public, it's embarrassing. We've all done that. But if you saw him doing that, you would still cringe and say, man, that's, that's... that's embarrassing. That's gross. Okay, you wouldn't be more likely to vote for him because he had something stuck in his teeth. You wouldn't go to the exit polls after voting and say, "Yeah, you know, I was really looking for the candidate who uh, who had something stuck in his teeth. That was the quality I was most looking for in a candidate." So relatability is not really the key when it comes to presidents. I actually, I don't want the president to be relatable in that sense. Okay, we were just talking about normal people. And how we want our leaders to understand normal people and, and understand their concerns and look out for them and serve. They're supposed to be public servants, which means they should be serving the American people, uh, many of whom are just normal people. And all that's true. But that doesn't mean that I want the president to be just like some guy down at the bar or someone who's performing bad karaoke at the bar. Like I don't, if, you, if you're at a bar and they're doing karaoke... Which I would not, I don't go to the bar on karaoke nights, but if but if I did, I wouldn't look. It's like, hey, I want that guy's president. I wouldn't do that. I would really like to get back to a point. Call me old-fashioned. That's fine. I am. Um, old soul in a new world. And I, I would I would really like to get back to a point at some point soon where the president is a leader. And someone who acts with more dignity and self-composure than normal, you know. Um, I think that would be a very good thing. And that doesn't help in that regard. So, I, again, I guess this makes me old-fashioned. But I, I look at that, I'm like, no, I don't need this from the president. I don't need, oh, he's loose, he's having fun. You need to see the president having fun? Is that, is that, what you, is that the quality you want in the presidency? You know, I just want a guy who knows how to have fun. I give it. I could give a crap less if he knows how to have fun. That's not why we're hiring him. Okay, you're hiring him to do a specific job. 
And it's got nothing to do with having fun. So, and, and also, let's just be real about it, okay? Let, can we just be real about this? You watch that video there. I know if you're a Vivek Ramaswamy uh, fan, you watch that and you want to find some way to say, oh, no, it's great. If Beto O'Rourke was doing that, you would never stop laughing about it, nor should you. If that was a video of Beto or Pete Buttigieg doing that, you would, you would not be able to, you would laugh about it for the next three weeks without, without ceasing because that's how embarrassing and funny it would be in all the wrong ways. So let's have a little consistency. So that was on the, the negative end, but on the positive end, um, and this is the part, this is what I like to see from, uh, from Vivek Ramaswamy. Here he is being confronted by a uh, self-described pansexual LGBT activist. Watch this. I was just wondering, um, what were your opinions on the LGBT community? Well, I don't think it's one community. Really? Yeah. I mean, how could it be? You just mashed together an alphabet soup. Trans is fundamentally intention with gay, if you ask me. But what's your opinion? I'm personally a pansexual, so I was okay. just wondering what your views on same-sex couples were. I don't have a negative view of same-sex couples, but I do have a negative view of a tyranny of the minority. So, so I think that in the name of protecting against a tyranny of the majority, and there are times in this country's history where we have had a tyranny of the majority, we have now, in the name of protecting against tyranny of the majority, created a new tyranny of the minority. And I think that that's wrong. I don't think that somebody who's religious should be forced to officiate a wedding that they disagree with. I don't think somebody who is a woman who's worked really hard for her achievements should be forced to compete against a biological man in a swim competition. I don't think that somebody who's a woman that respects her bodily autonomy and dignity should be forced to change clothes in a locker room with a man. That's not freedom, that's oppression. And so I believe that we live in a country where free adults should be free to dress how they want, behave how they want, and that's fine. But you don't oppress, you don't become oppressive by foisting that on others. And that especially includes kids, because kids aren't the same as adults. And so I think adults are free to make whatever choices they want, but do not foist that ideology onto children before children are in a position as adults to make decisions for themselves. And so I think a lot of the frustration in the country, and if I'm being really honest, that I also share, comes from that new culture of oppression where saying those things can actually get somebody punished. And in my case, it's part of why it's my responsibility to say them. And I respect that you may have a different opinion, and that's okay. Part of what makes our country great is that you and I can be civil and have this conversation, and that we live in a country that still gives us, each of us, the right to speak you know, to a presidential candidate and back, and still say that we pledge allegiance to the same nation. So I think that's the beauty of our country, and that's my honest opinion. Awesome. Well, Thanks. thank you very much. I appreciate that. Thank you for your civility as well. I Absolutely. appreciate it. Okay, that's good. So that's the good stuff there. And this is where, uh, and that's that's what I like to see, you know, is, that's what I want to see from presidential candidates in general, um, is like, I just want you to be a serious, if you want to be a leader in this country, uh, really a leader at, at any level, I, I want you to be a serious person. And I don't think that's too much to ask, or at least it shouldn't be. I just want serious people to be leaders. And there, he comes across as a very serious person who, who uh, I think that was a pretty masterful job in dealing with what was supposed to be a trap. You know, she walked up there and she thought she had a good trap with the kind of open-ended, what's your opinion of the LGBT community? Which is like, what do you mean, what's your... It's just a, it's a kind of a nonsensical question meant to... Uh, but, but as soon as the question is asked to a presidential candidate, cameras are rolling, 
all of these uh, booby traps are laid out there. All these, it's a minefield now. Uh, that's what it's designed to be anyway. And he walks through it, uh, I think, in a quite a masterful way without, without, without dodging the question. Um, it's kind of hard to dodge the question. That's like a non-question anyway, so there's not much to dodge. But he just he gives an answer, and he turns it into an opportunity to give a little bit of a stump speech, but it doesn't come off as scripted. Um, and then she, and he, and he goes on for long enough that she just kind of like loses track of whatever she wanted to say, whatever she thought the comeback was supposed to be. And then she ends with, okay, well, thank you for answering that and walks away. And, uh, I think it was very well done. Now, there are some things that he says in there that I don't really agree with. I mean, the, the, he goes on about the, well, adults can do what they want and adults, for adults, it's fine, which seems to imply, you know, when it comes to, for example, Gender transitions, if you're an adult, you should still be able to do that. As you know, I believe in banning that stuff for everybody. And I don't think, and I, it, you know, the statement that adults should be able to do what they want obviously isn't true. Adults should not be able to do whatever they want. Like, there are laws in this country. Just because you're an adult doesn't mean you get to do what you want. Um, but I'm not going to uh, dissect every part of that. And I think in that context, him getting hung up on some of those points would have been a mistake. And this is also why I am not a president. Just why I'm not going to, I could never run for president or have, and have any hope if I did. Because I'll tell you what I would have done. First of all, I wouldn't have gotten past the first sentence there because when she introduces herself as a pansexual, that's, that's a, you know, the minute she says, well, I'm a pansexual and I want to know. My first answer would be, well, you're a pansexual? No, you're not. That's not a thing. That doesn't exist. Well, yes, I am. I'm like, no, what are you, what are you making out with the pots and pans in your house? That doesn't, that's not a thing. It doesn't, what is that? Okay. Uh, so I would have said something like that as a presidential candidate in that situation, probably not the best way to approach it. So he, uh, he finessed it a little bit more, which I think you need some of that also as a candidate. So that was, that was well done. And, and, and a lesson for other, um, candidates that this is kind of how you navigate that. And it's also like, you know, what your points are, what your message is. And staying on message is very important. Republicans often are bad at doing this. We were just talking about this with the abortion issue. Stay on message. The left's going to throw things at you all the time that are meant to get you lost in the weeds, send you off in this direction, off in that direction. No, let's. here's the message. Let's stay on message. And he does a great job of that there. All right, let's get to the comment section. With everything going on in the world right now, you can really use a good night's sleep. That's why you need to check out Helix Mattress. Helix has harnessed years of extensive mattress expertise to uh, bring their customers a truly elevated sleep experience. They just launched their new Helix Elite. The Helix Elite collection uh, includes six different mattress models, each tailored for specific sleep positions and firmness preferences. I've had my Helix for years now, and I absolutely love it. Night after night, I sleep like a sweet, sweet baby, and I want the same for you. Helix has a sleep quiz that matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress. Because why would you buy a mattress made for somebody else? Go to helixsleep.com Walsh. Take their two-minute sleep quiz to find the perfect mattress for your body and sleep type. Their flexible payment plans make it so that a great night's sleep is never far away. For a limited time, Helix is giving you 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Take advantage of this amazing offer at helixsleep.com Walsh. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Total GV says, Matt should be the peace broker for humanity when the aliens arrive. Um, no, I don't think that's a good idea, honestly. I'll admit that. 
and I know my limitations. Now, keep in mind that in the beautiful painting that we introduced uh, last week that you can still see behind me, um, I am not necessarily meeting the aliens to broker a peace deal. I'm meeting them so that I can get on their ship and fly away. That's why I packed all my belongings, which are all the, that's all I own is all the uh, stuff. If I have to, if I have to, if I'm leaving the planet, I'm just going to grab my merchandise from the, uh, from the Matt, Matt Walsh store on dailywire.com. So I, I, I don't think I'm, I'm a good peace broker necessarily. And the reason is that the aliens could way too easily convince me that actually humanity does deserve to be invaded and enslaved. I'd be far too easily convinced um, because I'd show up there and I'd make my plea and I'd say, no, please don't incinerate us. We're not so bad. Okay, don't judge us based on the stuff you saw on TikTok. It's not a good representation. It's not fair. And they would say, yeah, well, Earth is a degenerate freak show and it must be destroyed. I don't know what to tell you. And I would say, okay, fair. You have a good point. You make a good point. I don't know what else to say. That's all I got. So that's how it would go with me. I don't think I'd be the right guy for that job, but we can all appreciate the painting anyway. Um, Be Wise Open Eyes says, this is a 100% true story. I have multiple witnesses. This happened back in the late 90s. No one had cameras in their pockets to record random things. My mom, brother, babysitter, and myself were traveling back home from far away. We reached a point where there were no buildings or structures for miles, all flatlands. It was pitch blackout. We were in the car, and we saw strange lights in the sky, so we pulled over. We watched them for a while. There were a few aircrafts going straight up and down, then back and forth like it's an airplane in GTA, and they zipped back and forth in the blink of an eye. This was not human technology. These aircrafts were moving in impossible ways. It scared my brother so much he started to cry, LOL. So humans had to have found alien tech and were reverse engineering it. I believe you. Um, I believe you about this story, and the reason that I do is because you started the story by saying this is a 100% true story. Now, if you had started it by saying this is an 85% true story, then I'd be skeptical. And I would say, well, what 85, which is the, the correct 85% and what's the false 50? I wouldn't know. If you didn't say any, if you didn't clarify that it was a true story at all, then I would definitely not believe it. But what I know is that you said it's a true story. So if anyone else hears your story and says that's not a true story, well, I'm going to point them to the first sentence and say, oh, it's not? Well, it says it's a true story. Explain that. So um, I appreciate your story, and I and I uh, and again I believe you, uh, and I even believe your. So not only did you ascertain that this was alien technology, but that they were humans in the alien technology that had found it, and they were giving it a test fly. So you you had this whole story behind it that you. I don't know all the details of how you could have known that, um, but true story is a true story. What do you want me to say? Uh, Todd Sylvia says, Matt, thanks for this important work. This show was particularly enlightening. I thought you were going to go from face-peeling aliens to your skincare commercial. That would have been a good good transition also. Uh, In fact, from what I understand, the face peelers will not peel your face as long as you use GenuCell skincare. Uh, That's what I understand anyway. And finally, sci-fi writer says, Matt, Matt proves how well he knows his wife when he correctly guessed her response to the painting. In fact, I believe all women would absolutely love to have the painting hanging in every room, especially the bedroom. Uh, yes, and I can. Now, we have not brought, I haven't brought the, the painting home yet because we want to have it in the studio. We want to be able to share it with the audience for as long as possible. Um, so I haven't brought the actual painting home yet. But 
my wife, I can report, did see the segment where we unveiled it. And I was uh, sitting with her when she watched it. And I can tell you right now that she loved it. Uh, she loved it. She loved that it's coming home. She was very excited about that. Now, she made a show of hating it. She said things like, that's so tacky. That Did you really put your merchandise in the painting? What is this? She said things like, there's no way in hell this is going in the house. She said things like, you can keep that in the shed. She said things like, uh, when you go to work, you're going to come home and it's going to be in the fireplace on fire. She said all these sorts of things. But, you know, that's just her way of, uh, I, I think what I understood while she was saying all this, I understood that, here's what I understood, that she loved painting so much and she was so swept away by this piece of art that it almost scared her. She didn't know, she, was, she, didn't, ex she, she didn't expect to like the painting as much as she did. Uh, and so she panicked. It's like, it's one of those things you, you, beho you behold a, a beauty that is so tremendous that it almost, it's almost terrifying in a certain way. And, um, and I think that was the case for her. So she never verbally indicated anything but pure disgust at the painting, but deep in her heart, I know what she was really thinking. So. Very excited about it. Very excited to bring it home and share it with, uh, with the family for years to come. Planning to send your kid to college this year? Well, look, I've been on these campuses. I've seen firsthand how woke ideology has infiltrated and polluted these once great universities. Give your kids a fighting chance by sending them off with Jeremy's Razors. Right now, get up to 20% off select razor and men's care bundles like the shampoo, body wash, and conditioner, all paraben-free, sulfate-free, woke-free, and made in the USA. And get him a Precision 5 razor with welded steel blades and flip-back trimmer that will groom his face, not his worldview. Help your son escape academia's leftist indoctrination by more than just a close shave. Go to jeremysrazors.com for uh, major deals and give Jeremy's back-to-college bundles a full ride today. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. I opened the show one day last week with news of a volcanic eruption. It wasn't really news at all, at least not recent news. The volcano erupted at the beginning of last year, way out in the South Pacific. The eruption lasted for several weeks, leading to a climax on January 15th that produced the largest atmospheric explosion ever recorded. It was an unfathomably massive event, causing tsunamis from New Zealand to Japan to the U.S. to Peru to, to Chile. Um, it's thought to be the most powerful volcanic eruption since Krakatoa in 1883, which killed 36,000 people. But the most important point for our purposes is that, is that this tremendous event, an explosion about 1,000 times more powerful than the Hiroshima bomb, spewed 150 million metric tons of water vapor into the air. So we're talking about trillions of gallons of seawater injected right into the stratosphere. As I explained last week, the uh, sheer force of the explosion and the astronomical amount of water that it sent hurtling into the sky is what led NASA scientists to predict back in August of last year that temperatures would rise across the planet as a result. Water vapor traps heat. So you add 150 million metric tons of it, increasing the water vapor in the stratosphere by over 10% all in one shot, and you're likely to feel some noticeable warming on the surface. This is what NASA predicted, and it's exactly what happened. And again, as I explained last week, other scientists have confirmed this connection. In fact, uh, research meteorologist Ryan Mao says that the volcano's effect on global temperatures has been, if anything, quote, greatly underestimated. Another scientist, Ryan Rod, 
uh, argues that the impact of, on temperatures might be relatively small, or it might be having a, quote, more complicated effect that we don't yet understand. One study says that the warming from the volcano could be as high as 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit, which is quite significant. So that's what the science says. And if you trust the science, quote unquote, then you must at least acknowledge that this volcanic eruption is, at a minimum, a factor in the unusually warm temperatures we've experienced this summer. Some scientists think that it's a potentially major factor. Others aren't sure. But what we do know is that an honest person cannot talk about warming temperatures without mentioning that volcanic explosion a thousand times more powerful than the Hiroshima, Hiroshima bomb that blasted enough water into the air to fill about 60,000 Olympic-sized swimming pools. And yet, most media outlets have done exactly that. They have simply pretended that the volcanic eruption never happened. They've determined on their own that the eruption had no impact at all, and therefore not even doesn't even need to be mentioned. No, the warming temperatures must all be the result of human activity. It must all link back to the minivan parked in your driveway. Now, there are forces on this planet that are far more powerful than your minivan, so powerful that we can barely conceptualize them. Yet those forces have been ruled out by most of the media, which is the point that I made in my monologue last week. But the good news is that I did convince at least one media outlet to acknowledge the volcano, even if they acknowledge it only to debunk the points that I made about it, quote unquote, debunk it. Writing for The Hill, energy and environment reporter Rachel Frazin, 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 Frazin? We'll say Frazin. Rachel Frazin wrote a piece on Saturday titled, Climate Change is Driving Higher Temperatures, Not a Volcanic Eruption. Now, the first thing you should know about Rachel Frazin is that she has a party line she feels the need to defend. Obviously, being an environment reporter, quote unquote, for a mainstream outlet already means that she totally buys into the man-made climate change theory. She wouldn't have the job if she didn't. But more specifically, Frazin published a report two weeks ago titled, is this summer's extreme heat the new normal? And just to give you an idea of the quality of the science in this article, she ends it by quoting Bernie Sanders, that scientific expert, Bernie Sanders. She also makes no mention of the volcano at all. She is therefore one of the media members that I was criticizing in my monologue. So, so she goes into the conversation with an established bias and with a personal incentive to defend her own reporting. This fact is not disclosed in her fact check, however, even though it should be, because The Hill is not a serious or honest news outlet. So with that in mind, here's what she writes, quote, climate change is the major driver of this year's extreme temperatures, not the eruption last year of an underwater volcano near Tonga in the Pacific, in the Pacific Ocean, scientists tell The Hill. While the eruption volcano may be an aggravating factor, the scientists say it is not having the impact attributed to it by conservative commentators who have downplayed the role of climate change. Scientists told The Hill the eruption should not be used to undercut the influence of climate change on this year's heat waves. Quote, it's probably fair to say that the influence of volcano on this year's extremes is quite small, said Stuart Jenkins, author of a paper that discussed the eruption. Other experts agreed, quote, the big story is not the volcano and it's not really the El Nino, it's global warming, said NASA scientist Josh Willis. Holger Vommel, a senior scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, meanwhile, said that at this point, it's too soon to say whether the volcano was a factor in the heat waves. It's probably too soon to say that definitively. It's certainly possible, he said. But he said, even if the eruption is playing a role, it should not be used to undercut the role of climate change. And that's it. That's the whole fact check. 
The article continues. She goes on to talk about the dastardly conservatives who keep talking about the volcano, even though there are only two of us, apparently, me and Eric Erickson, we're the only ones. But uh, she, she doesn't bring any more evidence to bear. In fact, she brings no evidence at all of any kind. She simply quotes three random scientists, one of whom says that the volcano is impacting the temperature, but the impact is, quote, probably small. The other says that it's too soon to determine the volcano's connection to the temperature definitively. In other words, even her cherry-picked experts still must admit that they actually can't disprove the theory that they've been enlisted to disprove. Nor can they make any statement strong enough to support the definitive declaration in the title that, according to the title of the piece, the volcanic eruption is, quote, not driving higher temperatures. In fact, one of her experts says that it is a factor driving higher temperatures, but theorizes that it might be a small factor. So her title and the setup for the article seems to be leading to some kind of evidence that the volcano was a non-factor, and yet even her own evidence undercuts that narrative. That's how sloppy these climate alarmists are. But it gets worse. Let's go back to that first sentence again. Frazen writes again, Climate change is the major driver of this year's extreme temperatures, not the eruption last year of an underwater volcano near the Tonga in the Pacific Ocean. So do you see the problem here? Her underlying premise is incoherent. What do you mean that climate change is the major driver and not the volcano? The whole point is that the volcano is changing the climate. So I'm saying that it's it's warmer this summer because the volcano changed the climate. And your response is that, no, it's warmer because the climate changed. Well, yes, we know it changed. The question is why? In fact, the climate is always changing. Literally nobody on earth denies, quote, climate change. The climate is in a constant state of change all the time, every second of the day. Climates change, it's what they do. They change day to day, minute to minute. We all understand that. It's not in dispute. That's the nature of the climate. The question is what factors cause the climate to change in one particular way or another. And I am pointing out that according to the data, we are right now living through a period in which the climate has been noticeably and quantifiably changed by a historically massive volcanic eruption. And this should not be a surprise, by the way. There are volcanoes on this planet that, if they erupted, could blot out the sun for years and end human civilization as we know it. These are incomprehensibly powerful forces. They cannot be simply ignored, as Rachel Frazen would like to do. Frazen is clearly anti-science, which is why my response when she reached out for comment was admittedly dismissive. And she quotes my statement in her article, quote, Contacted by The Hill, Walsh said, I'm not going to entertain questions from volcano deniers in an emailed statement shared by a spokesperson. Now, I appreciate that she got my full statement in there. Uh, I am taking a cue from her and her climate alarmist compatriots. You know, if we question their claims about human beings causing an always impending climate apocalypse, we are climate deniers, they say, as if we somehow deny the very existence of the climate itself. Well, by that same token, those who deny the impact of volcanoes on the climate are volcano deniers. They deny volcanoes. Now, does Frazen deny the effect of volcanic eruptions on the climate? Or does she deny the volcanoes erupt in the first place? Or does she deny the very existence of volcanoes themselves? Not entirely clear. All I know for sure is that volcano denialism is a dangerous conspiracy theory. You know, one minute somebody denies volcanoes, the next minute they're spelunking right into the middle of an active volcano because they think the lava is just melted cheese. 
Many thousands of volcano deniers have met their demise this way, maybe. For Rachel Frazen, volcano denialism might be nothing more than clickbait, a way to drive engagement. But the damage done by this misinformation is very real. And that is why, ultimately, Rachel Frazen and all the rest of the volcano deniers are today canceled. And that'll do it for this portion of the show. As we move over to the members block, you become a member today by using code Walsh to check out for two months free on all annual plans. Hope to see you there. If not, talk to you tomorrow. Godspeed. Luxury is meant to be livable. Discover the new leather collection at Ashley with premium quality leather sofas, recliners, and more, all built to last. No matter how many spills, scuffs, or pet-related mishaps come its way, the leather collection at Ashley is made with the durability you need for the whole family. Shop the new leather collection at Ashley and find chairs starting at $499.99 and sofas at $599.99. Ashley, for the love of home.